Hi, and welcome to the Ministry Network Podcast. I'm your host, James Baird. Today, we'll be talking with Tony Ranke about Christianity and media. At Ministry Network, we've just launched a new product for pastors. It's called Behind the Pulpit, and it's an intimate journey with experienced ministers, including John Piper, Alistair Begg, Tim Keller, Steve Lawson, Conrad Mbewe, Harry Reeder, Joe Novenson, and many more. If you'd like to learn more, visit ministrynetwork.com forward slash behind the pulpit. Now, let's talk with Tony. Tony, thanks so much for joining us on Ministry Network. Oh, it's, it's my honor to be here. Thanks for having me on. I am so excited about talking about our topic today. It is every day. It becomes more and more relevant, and that is how to treasure Christ in the media age. Yeah. Yeah, that's the challenge, right? I mean, that's what we're facing is there's an inundation of media on our eyes, on our senses, and the folks that are making that media, they're making that media even more addictive, even more compelling. It's harder to resist. And so, you know, in our culture, there's certain stigmatisms with, you know, overeating. Like you eat too many carbs and you get, you know, fat like me and everybody says that's bad. And, you know, it's just there's a cultural stigmatism that goes along with it, you know. But when it comes to overindulgence in our smartphone screens and in digital media, there is no stigmatism. There's like nothing. If you're going to resist that, it's just pure willpower. No cultural stigmatism is going to help you there. So it's a challenge. It's a big challenge. Well, you have so many helpful tips to overcome that challenge. And today's the day when we're going to be talking about them. Can you tell us a little bit about how you first became interested in analyzing media from a Christian perspective? Yes, yeah, so my background is in journalism. Uh, my undergrad focus was journalism, specifically sports journalism, of all things. And I fell in love with feature article writing, especially with stories that could move from you know discrete sporting events back to broader cultural phenomenon. So I've always had an eye for cultural trends in that way. Later, I got a degree in liberal arts, which sort of gave me the tools to research, engage, and navigate my way around secular trends in popular culture. And then I, I got saved at age 22 and my love for journalism and feature writing merged into writing about the sort of the ethical dilemmas that I saw being faced by Christians. So for me, it, it naturally emerged into one sort of single matrix with social media, mass media, technology, and science. And kind of those four interests all merged in the smartphone, both in what it is materially, but also the kinds of behaviors that it induces. And so the smartphone sort of became the bullseye then of my focus in about 2014. Uh, I looked around, I didn't see many Christians really addressing media and screen media in particular. So I started conducting audience surveys about, you know, personal habits with media, did a survey of 8,000 Christians, and then began interviewing theologians. And it all sort of grew from there. So I've, I've written on social media and smartphones, and then I've written on mass media. And now my book that's coming up in 2022 is sort of a a macro look at technology in general, uh, which is sort of be the capstone to a trilogy. And there I'll look at like microprocessors, computers, but also space travel, genetics, AI, robotics, and sort of where did all of this innovation come from and what's God's relationship to it all. So that's kind of how it sort of just grew from to about 2014 into my interest and in sort of the thing that I've written most about in the last seven years. Can you walk us through that trilogy for people who may not be familiar with your books? Sure. I wrote uh, 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You, and that was published in 2017. That's probably the book that people most would recognize me for now. 
And that was specifically with social media and smartphone overuse. Like, what are these screens in our pockets doing to us? And then the next book that came out last year, uh, 2019, was uh, Competing Spectacles, Treasuring Christ in the Media Age. And that was a book more just more at the macro perspective of how does mass media condition us when it comes to politics, when it comes to commerce, when it comes to gaming, when it comes to pornography, when it comes to so many different areas vying for our attention. What does it what does it mean to live in the attention market? And so that's kind of sort of a bigger perspective on attention and media. And then this third capstone project that will be launched in January of 2022, I believe. It's titled God, Technology, and the Christian Life. And so just walking back and even going even more meta, more macro into like what sort of technological possibilities did God give us and how does he govern over that? Both our technologies that heal and our technologies that destroy. And can we make any sense from scripture over how we should make sense of, of the technology and innovation that we have access to today? And the books that have been released are two amazing books. And what's been fun to watch, just following you personally, is the places that it's taken you. So I believe you were giving a talk on media and faith, and you had a so-called social media influencer surprise you in the audience. (laughs) Can you tell us that story? Yeah, so I was in Frisco, Texas at a church doing a, uh, I have a parenting seminar. I do kind of a a one-night kind of walk through some of the things my wife and I have learned over the years of raising three teenagers in the digital age. And at one point I was talking about how my youngest son, my 14 year old is uh, addicted to dude perfect videos. I mean, he just wastes tons and tons of time in watching dude perfect videos. And the audience, you know, there's probably two, 250 people there. They laughed. I'm like, they knew who dude perfect was and stuff. And so there was this awkward pause where like I could hear the snickering and the laughing like tailing on. I was like, okay, this is a little bit weird. And I was going to go into my next point, and the pastor who was sitting in the front row said, hey, Tony, stop, look right behind me. And I looked down in row two, and it's one of the Dude Perfect guys. There's a purple <laughs> purple hoser dude who's right there in row two with his wife and his little kids. And so once I noticed that, then the place erupted, and just it was a very funny moment. And then I tried to dig myself out of the hole by talking about how edifying Dude Perfect can be as a family yes, to watch. Yes, of course. So. <laughs> That's a bonding experience, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so even the reality TV stars are, you know, they they have kids now. You know, all these dude perfect guys. I think all of them have kids now. And it's like, it's one thing to be in college doing trick shots and trying to get you know a million people to watch, but then once you realize, like, you know, you've got boys and uh, sons and daughters who are now as addicted to the screen as you've tried to make people in the past, and it it brings a, a very significant dilemma in the lives of reality TV stars because now they see their kids are now being manipulated is too strong, but they're being, you know, addicted to their screens by really by the personalities that they had become themselves. And so no small task then for raising kids in the digital age, whether you're uh, a reality TV star or not. Yeah. And what's amazing is, you know, some of these influencers you wouldn't even know are believers. Right. Like the like some of the do perfect guys and which makes totally your content even more pertinent. You know, how do you balance what your full-time job is with what your responsibility is as a Christian and as a parent? Yeah. That's huge. Yeah. So, we've been talking about the word media obviously implied in that is social media, but can you tell us a little bit more about what's packed into that term and how media has sort of developed over time? 
Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I mean, media is a carrier of content. So it can be a book, it can be a tweet, a movie. This podcast is media. Uh, I mean, we could do a whole recording just on defining what media is. I mean, most basically, most fundamentally, DNA is media. It's a, the packages of data that are stuffed into most of the cells of our bodies. So God sort of created, you know, what we think of as data. But then it would include the whole history of language would sort of fall under this. Something that began in Eden. You know, language is just a gift from God. It has no origin but from him. And then it proliferates in Babel. So language is one of the rare things that are directly a gift from God. He just pours that into his creation. So language is what makes possible speech, writing, scrolls, uh, libraries, fair laws. You don't have fair laws until you can document them on paper, which then leads to democracy. Then you leads to printing presses, telegraphs, tweets, social media, and then all the programming languages that we use today. So it's all of that is language. So language is being carried by something that's media. So media is, is prominent because so much of the technological advances of the past century uh, have been innovations in communication. And so if you read some of the critiques of Silicon Valley is that there's been an over-indexing on communications technology. Like, yeah, we've, we've, you know, you can send a message to someone across the globe or on the International Space Station, you know, in real time. But like there's other bigger problems that we need to figure out that technologists have sort of taken their eyes off of because, you know, the communications technology is so it's so fun. And you, you can, you know, it's just watching smartphones and texts and tweets and stuff. It's, it's kind of addicting to have that kind of power. But we're kind of behind now on other technologies that need to be, you know, pushed along, too. So but yeah, that's sort of where it comes from. And it's we're just living in this age where there's so many new communications technologies that are coming out by the week, new platforms. So it's just all of that is media. And in your newest book, you talk about the idea of spectacles. What do you mean by that idea and how does it relate to media? Yeah, so a spectacle is, I guess you could call it sort of a media that grabs a lot of attention. A spectacle is sort of, it's a moment of time of varying length in which a collective gaze is focused and, and fixates on some specific image or video or event. So a spectacle is something that captures human attention. It's an instant when both our eyes and our brains focus and fixate on something. In an outraged society like ours, spectacles are often controversies, the latest scandal in sports or entertainment or politics. So it's like any five-second slip of the tongue that any candidate makes behind a microphone. That becomes a video that you know the opposite side just loves and shares and retweets and blows up into a huge spectacle you know look at how dumb that candidate is you can't vote for him you know and it goes back and forth you know and so you know controversy in any form makes for a captivating spectacle to grab millions of eyes and so as our media gets faster and faster it becomes sort of more and more fragmented the most minuscule public slip of the tongue or passive aggressive celebrity comment even a little gif or gif, however you, however you want to say it, you know, like if Kanye posts some gif gif that is, you know, subversive to someone, they like, you know, it will go viral. So, you know, it could be a 10 second video clip, could be really anything. So spectacles include brilliant photographs, eye catching billboards, animations, commercials, uh, music videos, gaming advertisements, anti-advertisements, you know, sort of the ads like KFC or Sprite, they're like telling you like, hey, we're putting before you an advertisement. You know that, we know that, let's share in this little joke. It's a really creative trick of advertising that does that, but sitcoms do that too, you know, sort of the sitcom about the sitcom or a movie about the movie or talk show about the talk show. So spectacles can be all sorts of 
mind-blowing digital landscapes. They can be network TV shows. They can be the Super Bowl, some new season of a show on Netflix, a blockbuster movie, horror film, sports clips, highlights, injuries of athletes. All of those are spectacles. And as you know, our culture is just awash in them. And so much so the spectacles now compete for our limited attention. So that's the huge competition right now is to grab as many eyes as possible. And that means the president's tweets get more insane. The trick shots get more insane. The pranks get more insane because there's so much competition for our eyes in what's called the attention market. And so that's sort of what drives the economy this attention economy. And as Christians, we have to learn to live within that. Can you walk us through some of the spectacles in media today that have been the most influential and how we should be maybe cognizant of their influence? Politics is the big one right now. And I guess the important thing to know is that this cultural phenomenon is, it's not just that we consume spectacles. We don't just merely ingest them, but we're always responding to them. I think that's the thing that Christians don't often realize is that images always want something back. Images want our celebration, they want our awe, they want our affection, our time, our outrage. So images try to induce from us our consensus, our approval, our buy-in, our respreading power in our own feeds, and of course our wallets to our money. So, you know, the porn industry wants your lust. YouTubers will give you new spectacles in exchange for your views, your subscribes, your likes. Netflix flat out wants your most precious commodity. They want your time. They deliberately will intrude on your sleep patterns to get more time from you. Politicians, of course, want our votes. Gaming industry wants our money. And so, you know, from each of those different categories of spectacle makers come eye-grabbing spectacles, each of them demanding something from us. And so this is the competitive market for our attention. And it's, it's so immersive that oftentimes we just don't step back and decode kind of how it all works and, and what it does to us. So I'm watching the uh, the new documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. Um, I'm watching that with my two teens. We're about halfway in. And it's on smartphones and social media. Basically, all the people in Silicon Valley who voice their warnings and concerns up to about 2016, all of those voices are brought together in one place. So if you've been sort of reading in this area, you won't learn anything new. But if you haven't, it's a great summary of sort of the critique of Silicon Valley. So it's a really good a sort of summary. But you know, as I'm watching this again, I'm struck by the fact that, and this is something that really motivated me to write my book, 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You, is that on the one hand, there is a social dilemma. Our time is being monetized, but there's also a spiritual dilemma too. And it's the fact that our smartphones, they basically give us what we most want. You know, I'm thinking of David Foster Wallace when he talks about television. Like the thing that television does best is give lots of people what they most want. You know, and, and that's sort of true in our phones, too. Our phones do what TV did for the masses for years, now in sort of a discrete screens that are tailor-fitted to our own desires. And that, that's what you never really hear in these documentaries. You hear a lot of sort of alarmist language about evolutionary patterns that, you know, have been deduced from how we behave. So Silicon Valley's, you know, neurological experts are trying to learn how to exploit some easily triggered, you know, uh, reflexive response in us that we've had for 100 million years or something like that. But as Christians, what we add to this conversation, and it's really significant, is this. I am not a victim of my phone or a victim of Silicon Valley. My phone, my social media platforms are simply delivering to me what I most want. And that's that's a huge responsibility to in this conversation is to bring that aspect. Like we have affections and desires 
and those are sinful desires. They're misdirected. And those misdirected desires get solidified into social media algorithms that feed our desires even more. So algorithms don't tell me what to desire. Algorithms feed me what I most desire already. And so that's the thing that really strikes me is that the tailored algorithm is basically a digital decipher of what I most want. And that's sort of the Kafka-like nightmare awakening. When you look into your phone screen and you realize it's a black mirror to reflect into my eyes what my heart most desires in pixelated form. That's the element that we bring as loving creatures who must, who desire and must love something. We, we have to give our hearts to something. And that's haunting when you realize that the algorithm is just being tailored to the thing that you most want. I think TikTok right now, you know, the large up and coming winner, really, of the attention economy displays your point the best because as you're flipping through, I'm not sure how much time you spent on there. I've spent more than I should have, but it's actually a live feedback loop of what you're most interested in. So if my wife and I, our kid just turned one, so we love looking at cute baby videos. And before you know it, you have cute baby videos everywhere. And then once we're interested in trick shots, all of a sudden there's trick shots everywhere. And it's just mastered this ability to reflect back to us. One of the things that's unique, I mean, there's a lot of things that aren't unique about our spectacle age. I mean, you had the ancient Roman Colosseum, Augustine's were you know, warning Christians about that. You had the theater district in, you know, in 17th century London that the Puritans were warning about. So the spectacle industries are not uh, unique to our age. What is unique is the infinite media. And that's exactly what TikTok is. It's the infinite scroll, which means you never get to the bottom. You know, you keep, you keep scrolling and it goes forever. And each video is a loop that can go infinitely too. You can just watch it over and over again. So it's the first time really that an app has mastered the art of infinite media, which that is a very new thing that has never been seen in human history. You used to have to go physically to a place to be entertained, or, you know, you had a television. I mean, I remember growing up, we didn't have a VCR, we didn't have cable. So it was like after the nightly news and maybe one late night show, it was like static until 5 a.m. Or, you know, like there's nothing, physically, there was nothing to watch between like 11 p.m. and 5 a.m. or whatever it was. And uh, that's all different. I mean, 24-7, 365 on the, the screen in your pocket, you can pull up infinite media. To circle back to the documentary, The Social Dilemma, the great irony of it is that it's a documentary on Netflix that many people will binge late into the night <laughs> on, <Exactly. laughs> on how, you know, social media basically is disrupting our lives. I mean, the, you're watching it on the platform that has the same goals as Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. And I think there's a there's a similar... Yeah, and probably a lot of people are listening to this podcast on their phones too, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, there's a similar irony here with us, right? I mean, someone probably found this uh, on Facebook or Twitter, and, and then they're listening to it on Apple Podcasts. So how do you... I've seen on Twitter, you've gotten some pushback on this. How do you think about media? You're talking about the sort of disruptive, destructive attributes that it has, but you yourself... I mean, make a living doing this for Desiring God. So how do you bring that tension together? Yeah, so it, for me, it comes down to uh, calling. I mean, this for me, if there's one takeaway from all of my research on smartphones is that we have to be clear on what God has called us to individually. And, you know, more generally, Jesus helps us understand calling, like in Luke chapter 10, when, you know, a lawyer comes to him and puts Jesus at the test, says, Jesus, you know, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, how do you interpret the law? 
And the lawyer says, you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. And so those two answers, they're right answers. If you're trying to understand the law, Jesus says those are the right answers with the two love commands. In other words, what it looks like to be fully alive, to be fully human, is to live out those two callings, which is to love God with everything you are and love your neighbor as yourself. That's not how sinners self-justify. We have to be justified in the blood of Jesus Christ as our substitute to pay the wrath of God that we deserve for breaking the law. But when we're redeemed, then those two love commandments become the calling of our lives. We love God with all that we are, and we love others as ourselves. It's very simple. I mean, you can boil down the purpose of your life to those two things. And within that second category, you can fit whether you're a student, whether you manage a home, whether you're a businessman, whatever it is that you are, you can fit that into that second category of loving others as yourself. And so then once you decide, like, okay, you get conviction there, like this is this is what it means to be fully alive. Then you back up and you say, okay, now what technologies help me do this? And what technologies hindered me from doing this? And then you make objective decisions based on those realities. And so this came home to me recently. About a month ago, I talked with a group of missionaries about how culture shock in international missions, it doesn't really happen anymore. It used to be that missionaries left home for years, you know, said goodbye, left, maybe called on holidays, but then they entered a new country. They got immersed into a foreign culture and dealt with the shock of that integration just as a normal part of the, the entry process to becoming part of a new people group. And, and now missionaries bring their smartphones into new nations. And that means they always can retreat to what is friendly and familiar. And so there's always been this digital escape from immersion into a given culture, but now it's totally different. So there's no culture shock. And that's not a good thing for the gospel. According to these missionaries I was talking with, there's a major problem. And that works to give an escape to sort of evade the missional calling of cultural immersion. And so we're all sort of feeling that, whether you're a missionary or not. And so it comes down to like, what is the purpose? What, why did God put me on this planet? And what technology helps me accomplish that? And which technologies get in the way of that? So my wife, four years ago, went off Facebook, went off Instagram, and she's not been on social media since. She's like, I'm called to be a wife and mother. I've got all these things that I need to do. These tools don't help me accomplish what God has called me to do. Now, you might be in the same situation, and they may help you do uh, what God has called you to do. And so that's, you know, for me personally, when I look at, you know, God has called me to research some of the common cultural trends and address them from a Christian perspective, social media is one of the best ways to get the word out. I still write books because I think book writing is the best way to sort of jump and plunge into a particular topic. But I get the word out on social media. So it may be hypocritical, but I, it's useful and it's helping me fulfill what God has commissioned me to do. Well, I'll let you off the hook. I don't think it's hypocritical. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. And of course, of course, I have skin in the game too. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. But I think the reason goes back to what you said earlier. You know, God created media and he created it to give us what we desire and we need to align our desires so that we want the right kind of media. Exactly. But we also need producers out there that are actually dumping good, uplifting, God glorifying content so that believers can have the algorithm actually give, um, basically we need people like you who are producing content so that the feedback loop can give us good things. Yeah. Amen.
Yeah, I mean, the smartphone can overrun you with media, but it's also a great place to go to find edifying media as well. And so in uh, my book, 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You, I wrote a whole excursus for artists and Christians who want to use digital media and to use the modern marvel of connectivity, like we're connecting right now to record this, in order to share the gospel. And these are truly incredible marvels of our age, powers that Christians in previous centuries would gape at and wonder, you know? So part of our battle is not losing our awe over the gifts that God has given us, because you're exactly right. These are gifts, but our calling is to take all the possibilities of every potential gift and learn how to use them strategically. So Christians who create and share digital media have more open doors and opportunities for expression than at any time in church history ever. And so I think the posture of the church is is not tilted backwards and away from digital media, but actually forward and open to new uses of technology to produce uh, new writing poetry, spoken word, music, documentaries, movies, vlogs, podcasts like this, uh, reality TV, even photography, paintings, I mean, you name it, all for the purpose of reflecting God's glory and engaging the world with a biblical worldview, and even sometimes specifically proclaiming the, the hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when it comes to ministry, I mean, Jesus liked to use a broadcasting metaphor. You know, when a farmer tosses seed all over the ground, you know, literally today we call that broadcast seeding scattering seeds, hoping for a few of those to take root, to grow, and to flourish into a crop. Just a few of those growing into a crop justifies the whole spreading, you know? And so in the same way, Christian leaders and artists are called to broadcast the the truth of God's word all over the place, prayerfully hoping that some of it will take root. So I'm in no way advocating cheesy religious memes. <laughs> That's not what I'm getting at. But you saw that deep, thoughtful place of original reflections that emerge from that place where God's creation and uh, biblical truth meet our life and our worship. That's what we want to broadcast and pray for fruit. So God calls all sorts of people uh, who will thrive in the digital medium, apologists, teachers, advocates, musicians, prophets, uh, a myriad of ways to speak grace into the lives of others and without in any way diminishing the embodied life of the local church that is so crucial. But the digital opportunities are, are nearly endless. You know, when we look back at the Reformation, the fuel on the fire was the printing press. Absolutely. So And marketing. I mean, you could you can make the argument that Martin Luther created marketing, mass marketing. <laughs> I mean, before his time, like, it was academics writing Latin books for academics. And he was like, let's write books for the masses. <laughs> that is revolutionary. And, oh, let's put a bunch of cool art in the front. And let's mass produce this. And let's write short form books. Some of his books are like 1,500 words long. Like, I mean, he was a marketing genius. I Every time I hear Christians like poo-pooing marketing, I'm like, dude, <laughs> I, I don't think there was marketing until Martin Luther. Uh, there's a book called Brand Luther that kind of goes back into it about how Martin Luther created his own brand. And there's no explicit statement in that book that says that Martin Luther invented marketing. But that's, I think, the implied statement of the book is in Brand Luther is that he was the first to do branding. <laughs> so a lot of furrowed brows when I tell Christians that. That's so cool. <laughs> I'm going to, I want to buy that book now. <laughs> it's really good. But it, you know, it pushes us back to not be separatists, you know, but to think this is God's world. None of this has taken God by surprise. What would God have us to do in this moment with these tools and return them to him with a prophet? That's exactly right. I mean, there's a number of Christians that would be amazed at the smartphone. Jonathan Edwards would be one. I mean, there's this journal entry from Edwards, I think is in the 1750s, kind of later in his life. He's sitting in his office holding a mariner's compass. 
and he's realizing that this little handheld gadget thing is what is connected continents. So it's like, wow, God has connected continents through this Mariner's compass. And then he starts to riff on, I wonder if there will be a time when the global church will be able to communicate with one another in real time, no matter what continent they're on. I mean, he, he foresaw like Twitter, Zoom, he saw, you know, he foresaw this. So, I mean, if, if Edwards would walk into our culture, I mean, he would, I mean, he would be like, oh, this is why I'm post-millennial. <laughs> and then he, then he would open his feed and realize, oh, <laughs> not yet. It's yeah. a mess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it didn't, he, he was thinking that we would all come together and sing hymns together and, and that would be sweet. But I don't think he realized that the church would fracture over everyone polarizing into tribalism. You would probably have something to say on that. So we have we have this tool, these new channels, to capture the attention of the world. I mean, billions of people on the internet. But part of that means having a different kind of spectacle that we're drawing attention to. Can you tell us a little bit about how we can actually look at the Christian story as a spectacle? Yeah, so I mean, if you're listening to this conversation, it would be easy at this point to sort of fall back to a position that's just anti-spectacle. You know, trash the TV, throw away the smartphone, uh, live spectacle-free. And that's exactly not how God confronts the world. Uh, instead, which is, it's crazy to me that into this world that loves vain spectacles, with all of our spectacle makers and spectacle making industries, into that world came the greater spectacle, the greatest spectacle that was ever devised in the mind of God and brought about in world history. And that's the cross of Jesus Christ. So Christ crucified is sort of the, the hinge of history. It's the point of contact between BC and AD, where all time collides, where all human spectacles meet one unsurpassed cosmic divine spectacle for the ages. And so from that moment on, God intends for all human gaze to center itself on that climactic moment. It's as if God says to us, you know, this is my beloved son crucified for you a spectacle for your hearts to capture you forever. And what I mean is that everything about you in your eternal destiny then boils down to what kind of spectacle the cross is to you. You know, if it's merely the mocking of a fraudulent king in his final defeat, that's that's an eternal trajectory wrapped up in that. Or if it's the raising up of the king of the universe into supreme victory, that's the other option. So the cross is either terribly unfortunate or it is the glory of God displayed in a beauty that's unsurpassed. And so the spectacle of the cross separates all of humanity. So you, the impulse would be like, well, there's so many vain spectacles that therefore we should just do away with every spectacle. And God says, no, I'm going to give you a greater spectacle that will trump all of that. That will be greater than all of that. can capture your heart, not only now, but eternally. You'll behold the lamb as though it were slain, beholding Christ and his glorious defeat of Satan in his satisfaction of the wrath of God, like that is the spectacle, not only for our ears now, but for our eyes in eternity. And so he goes toe to toe with the spectacle industry and says, I'll give you a greater spectacle. So getting a little bit into the brass tacks here, what does it mean for Christians to sort of use the internet, use media to draw attention to that spectacle? Does it mean every TikTok video needs to be a sermon or Every uh, comment on YouTube or Facebook needs to be going to battle with unbelief. Yeah, how would you? How should we think about that? Yeah, that's that's a that's a big challenge, right? I mean, so first of all, it comes back to calling. Has God called you to be an apologist? Has He called you to be a pastor? Has He called you to be someone who has a platform? 
that may maybe no. I, like you may think that you should have a platform, but it distracts you from the things that you really should be doing. So I don't. I wouldn't say that everyone who is doing sort of online apologetics in the name of Christ should be doing it. Uh, I wouldn't want to imply that. But it, it it comes from that place where God's creation and God's word meet personal experience. And so that doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, a street preacher preaching the gospel explicitly. It could be in a lot of different ways that artists, you know, we talk about, you know, art from the church, art for the church, and kind of making some of those distinctions. I think the guys in Dude Perfect, I think some of them I know explicitly are, they want to see husbands or they want to see dads and sons building relationships together. They want to create an environment where dads and sons want to come to the live events or they want to do the trick shots or they want to, you know, they want to hang out with their son and do, you know, hunting or sport or whatever sport, you know. And so they're really trying to build into fathers and sons. They're building into families. They're not doing the sort of lewd frat boy trick shot channel. I mean, there's plenty of those out there, you know. And if you bring out the scantily clad women, like you would get more of that frat, you know, sort of audience. And they're not. So there's ways in which you can do this, I think, to the, the honor of your maker and not be explicitly called to be an evangelist or an apologist that's doing that explicit gospel work. And so, yeah, that's why I say there's so many ways to do this, that it really comes down to the calling that God has put on your life and the gifting that he's put on your life and then using the digital tools to live that out. So do you have any tips for someone who's kind of sort of trying to do a self-evaluation and analyze how they're using social media to make sure they're doing it in a, a God-glorifying way? Yeah, well, you don't want to do this by yourself. Uh, you want to bring other people in. You want to bring your spouse in, bring a pastor in, bring friends in, and say, here's what I, and this is being, you know, very raw and just saying, hey, this is what I do. What do you, what kind of feedback do you have for me? Because, you know, I think we all see people online who are doing things that you're thinking, oh, I don't know if Christians should do that, go after that, make, you know, attack them like that. And so, I think we have thoughts and feedback for a lot of people that we just keep to ourselves because we're not asked. And so just welcoming that feedback, I think, is a really big first step. And that's a huge heart check because, I mean, one of the the ironies of social media is that you're broadcasting yourself to a potential audience of billions, but somehow it still feels anonymous. So to actually go to a friend that you know or a pastor in real life and ask for their thoughts, I mean, man, that's scary. It is scary. It is scary. And what's really scary is I think some people are starting to realize that social media is not some edited version of a person, but what actually happens in social media is more the real them. And so, you know, this reminds me of a quote by an American cultural writer, Chuck Klosterman. He's a pretty insightful guy. I wouldn't, I, I don't recommend him. He's very much a secular writer and, and uses language I wouldn't agree with, but he said something really insightful a few years back. He said, he said this quote, for the longest time, from the beginning of Friendster, Friendster, okay, so Friendster is a social media platform that was like launched in the early 2000s. It was sort of like a pre-Facebook platform. It's kind of what they wanted to be what Facebook would become. So from Friendster, from 2003, up until the last couple of years, I always worked from this position. People deeply involved in social media have a real life of who they actually are and then create a character online that they edit. But I'm now skeptical of that thought. I think I had it backwards. I now suspect the way people are on Twitter and Facebook is more likely who they actually are. And in life, they're editing themselves to be different. Maybe, he says, it was always that way. End quote. Wow. Wow. 
So like, <laughs> there's a lot of truth to that, you know, and cause I know in 2020 during this pandemic, I know pastors who have had to go on Facebook and like arbitrate yeah. Oh, yeah. the debates between people in their church over, you know, politics, over policy, over mask wearing, over the pandemic. Like, so I know that like things are going crazy, even, you know, for pastors of small local churches watching this happen online. And so that's pretty haunting to think maybe when we don't actually physically see anybody and we just sort of think we're talking to ourselves, maybe that's when our truest thoughts come out. Which raises the question, what do you do whenever you have that friend, maybe you're a pastor and it's a member of your congregation and you see some unchristian, maybe some toxic behavior. How do you go about, you know, intervening or coming alongside that brother or sister? Well, it makes you wonder if there's going to be cases of church discipline and excommunication over screen grabs of what members have posted online. You know, like I can see that coming. Like, but, uh, you know, the solution remains face to face meetings with people in a local church to win them, you know. And so in 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You, number 11 of the 12 is we become harsh to one another. We just naturally, when we don't see embodied people around us, we naturally become harsher. And that comes out with what we thumb into our screens. And that's where I go into that chapter. I really go into the problem of irreconcilability. What is that? How does that manifest online and online harshness and what we do with it when it's people in our church that we see doing it? And then also, what do we do when it's just online? It's somebody that we don't have any physical contact with. How do we, you know, what do we, who do we block? When do we mute and things like that? So that whole chapter is sort of devoted to that question. But it is a challenge for local church pastors who, you know, Man, I know one guy who's got a church of about 200 people, doesn't have a lot of staff, you know, so he's kind of like the guy that does the funerals, the weddings, the sermons, leads worship, you know, one of those kind of things. And then it's like, you got people leaving your church over what somebody else in the church posted, you know? So like, it's like somebody posts something that's woke and the anti-wokers are offended. Somebody posts, you know, anti-masks, somebody, you know, it offends somebody. And so there's this, this fracturing of local churches through social media, which I think is going to be, maybe it's more of an amplified problem because um, some churches just can't meet physically or haven't during the past year. But uh, maybe it's more more of a common problem that we'll see more of. I don't know. It's, I, I just know it's a challenge for, for pastors who want to keep the unity when all of their parishioners are online and have a strong opinion about every headline that they see. You know, how, how do you unify around the gospel and, and keep the main thing the main thing when none of the headlines are about the spectacle of Christ? All the, all the headlines are about political candidates and debates and policies and riots and we need more of this, we need less of that. And so I think it's going to be, it's always going to be a challenge for the church to keep the main thing the main thing and maybe more so in the, the digital age. Mm-hmm. And it raises so many questions like... I think maybe six years ago, if someone unfriended someone else on Facebook, it wasn't that big of a deal. Yeah. But now it's become such a prominent way to interact, especially during the pandemic. You have to wonder, are they breaking fellowship with this <laughs> church? <laughs> right. It's almost like social media is this skeuomorphism. It's like representation of reality, but it's becoming so real. Yes. You know, what do you do with it? You know, it's tough. Yeah, it, it really is. Well, Tony, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's my honor. Let's do it again. We'd love that. Join us next time as we talk with Pastor David Murray. In the meantime, visit ministrynetwork.com forward slash behind the pulpit to learn about our new product, 